All right. <clears throat> well, who's read uh, Light of the Witch in the Wardrobe before? Read, read the book or seen the ballet or the movie? So in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you know, the four Pevensey children go through the wardrobe and into Narnia. And the more time that they spend there, the more they realize that they have entered into a story that's been going on before they got there. There's a story already in progress. Um, Narnia is under a curse by the White Witch where it's always winter and never Christmas. There's a lion whose name is Aslan. And he's rumored to be on the way to save Narnia from this white witch. But the most mind-blowing thing to these four children is that there is a prophecy about them. These four children who just came from Britain through the wardrobe into Narnia, there is a prophecy about them. And the prophecy is, when Adam's flesh and Adam's bone sits at Caerperavel and throne, the evil time will be over and done. It's a prophecy about them. Imagine going to a new place, you going to a new place, and finding that the people there have been expecting you, and that you have a role to play in the future of that land. Wouldn't that just blow your mind? Well, that's exactly the case with us, and with every human being who has ever lived. We're born into this world without asking for it. We don't ask to be born. We don't know why we're born when we're born. But an honest look at the created world will tell us that we didn't get here by ourselves and that this world with its breathable air and its survivable climate seems to have been made for human beings, seems to be made for us. But still, when we get here and, and we begin to think about things, we wonder, you know, what is it all about? Why was this world made? Um, why were we made? Is it all just pointless in the ongoing accumulation over billions of years of cellular change? Or, when we get here, is there a story that's already in progress? When we're born, is there a story that's already going on? And we find that we're in that story. And the answer is yes. And the Bible is where the author of this story that's been going on reveals himself and the story that he's telling. Does that make sense? So Paul says in Romans 1, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Romans 1, verse 18. Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Paul says that the created world points to a creator and what that creator must be like. We look around, we see trees, we see the sun, we see the oceans, mountains, stars, clouds and changing season, and, and we intuitively sense that someone made all this. But not, a, not just that somebody made all this, but that much of it is incredibly good and beautiful. We were just talking at breakfast about how good the sunshine has been the past couple of days after so many days of cloudiness and just ongoing cloudiness. To have the sun for a couple of days, even if it's not that warm, it's just an amazing thing. There's so many things that we appreciate about the sun. And so we sense 
that in the things that we see, the created things, we sense things about our Creator, and we sense that He must be good and beautiful too because of the good and beautiful things that we see in creation. But there's something else. Because when we look around, we also see that something has gone wrong with this world. We look around and we see violence, we see war, we see people degrading one another, we see damage to the good creation, and we see worship of the creation and not the creator who brought it into existence. And so we wonder, you know, what happened here? Imagine being a visitor who arrives in this world and sees all these good things, but yet also sees a lot of bad things. You'd ask, what happened here? What went wrong? And is there any hope that this tragic state of things can ever be reversed? Or is this just the story of the world and the way that it's going to play out forever? In that Romans passage, Paul is saying that before anybody is exposed to the Bible or anybody is exposed to a church or anything that is expressly Christian, a person can see the goodness of the world and the one who made it and also see that something is terribly wrong with the world. This is called uh, general revelation or natural revelation, what we can perceive from the created world itself. And Paul says pretty much anybody who's willing to look honestly at the world can detect these things, that, there's, that there is goodness and beauty in creation and that somebody made it, but also that something has gone wrong with this world. Um, in the, in, earlier in the passage, Paul said that some, by their unrighteousness, suppress the truth. Some don't want to see it, and so they come up with other alternative explanations. But somebody who's willing to look honestly can detect goodness and beauty in a creator, but also something that's wrong. But to learn why the world is here and what happened to it and to discover our own place in the story, we need special revelation from the author of the story. And that's what we're given in the Bible. In the Bible, we're given the why of everything. Through natural revelation, we can see that there is a story, but we can't see much beyond that. It's fuzzy. But the Bible gives us eyes to see its author, the story that he is telling, who we are in this story, what kind of world this is that we live in, and why there is hope for this ruined world. <clears throat> the Bible is 66 books written by numerous authors over a couple thousand years, and it's all superintended by God himself, and it's all telling the same story. You know, some authors will tell it in different ways. They'll accent different things about the story but they're all telling the same story, updating it as they go. And if you're not in love with this story, if you're not in love with the Bible, and you're not drawn to it over and over again, my hope is that in this next year, you'll not just read your Bible more or know more about your Bible, but that you will love the author, and that you'll trust him because you love the story that he's telling and your place in it. That's my hope for this year, is that we'll fall more in love with God because of the story he's telling us. Does that make sense? We good so far? Did I lose you in natural revelation? Special, re special revelation? Um, a lot of Christians struggle with reading the Bible. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you struggle with reading the Bible. But a lot of Christians do struggle with reading the Bible. And for them, it's, it's a discipline. If they engage in it, they have to exercise willpower to do it because it's not something that they naturally enjoy doing. 
Um, and it might be describing you. It may be something that, you know, you're like, gosh, I need to read my Bible more, but I don't really enjoy reading the Bible, and so it's a chore, and so I have to, it's like taking my vitamins or, you know, doing something that I really don't want to do. I remember a speaker once saying that um, he was exhorted to read three chapters of the Bible every day and five on Sunday, and by doing that, you'd read the Bible through the year. And it reminded him of his father-in-law who was, who was told by his doctor, you need to drink eight glasses of water a day. And his father-in-law was the kind of guy then that would wake up and drink eight glasses of water first thing in the morning because he did not want to do it throughout the day. He just wanted to get the thing over. And this speaker was like, that's how I felt about reading three chapters of, of the Bible a day and five on Sunday. It was to just, I got to get up, I got to grit it out, do it, and uh, you know, then I will have it done. Um, you know, if that's describing you, you might be okay with reading the Gospels, maybe Paul, the Psalms, but there are also less visited places in Scripture, places like Leviticus, Ezra, Nehemiah, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, the Minor Prophets, Revelation, and, you know, when Chad and I say, you know, this, this next uh, couple of months we're going to be in Ecclesiastes and we want you to read it, you might inwardly just be like, oh. Man, that is going to be a chore to get that done. And if that's you, there's, there's no judgment from me on that. I promise. There is, there is no judgment from me. The Bible can be a hard book to read, um, especially if you're primarily reading it devotionally. In devotional reading, I'm reading the Bible, I'm reading the text with hope from a word from God to apply that text to my life in the moment. Okay, so I'm, I'm reading, say, the Sermon on the Mount, and I, God, show me where, where I can apply this to my life. Um, there's nothing wrong with reading the Bible that way. There's nothing wrong with devotional reading. But if I only read the Bible that way, there's a whole lot of the Bible that's just not going to be very available to me. Um, there may be fruitful meditation for me on Romans 8 or on Romans 12 or 1 Corinthians 13. Um, but, you know, Leviticus, there's not a whole lot in Leviticus that you can read and God directly apply a word to your life. Uh, Hosea, Zechariah, Revelation. Uh, I may notice a correspondence between the four horsemen in Zechariah and the four horsemen in Revelation, but how does that apply to my life? How do, I, how do I make sense of that in my life circumstances? So devotional reading can be rich and it can be fruitful, but it's not the only way to read the Bible. And if it's the only way that you read the Bible, you're probably frustrated with the Bible a lot of the time. And you'll just you know, feel like you're kind of drowning in, in Ezekiel. Like, I'm not going to lay on my side for 390 days, so why am I reading this? Um, when our kids were little, we would, we would go to Kroger, and the bakery would give a free cookie to the kids whenever, you know, whenever we happened to go by the bakery. The kids could get a free cookie, um, which made it very easy to convince the kids to go shopping with Dawn when it was time to get groceries. But then an expectation began to set in that every time we went to Kroger, the kids would get a cookie. And this was not good. 
because sometimes it was inappropriate for the kids to have a cookie or sometimes you know, we were going to eat as soon as we get home and we didn't want them to have a cookie before we were going to eat dinner. So it wasn't good that there was an expectation to have a cookie every time we went to Kroger. Um, so we had to change the expectation for them that sometimes when we go to Kroger, you'll get a cookie, but not every time. And I think when we give ourselves to reading the Bible, we have to understand that we're not going to get a cookie every time we open the scriptures. There are very well maybe times where God directly speaks to us through his word and we can just see situations in our lives open up through this text. And it's amazing when that happens. And we praise God and we thank him for revealing that to us through the text. But it's not going to happen every time. It may not even happen most of the time. And it's okay if that doesn't happen. We're not always going to get a personal word or specific guidance. I might read a chapter of Proverbs every day, and I will gain wisdom in doing so, but that doesn't mean that God will tell me which of two jobs is the better one to take. God's not going to necessarily give me specific guidance for my life through the text. He might, but he might not. And if he doesn't, that's okay. I don't have to have a cookie every time. I remember somebody one time uh, who was telling me that they were considering whether to buy land. And uh, they happened to be reading in Jeremiah, and it's the passage where God tells Jeremiah to go buy a field. And they were like, this is it. I think this is God telling me to buy the land. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> I was like, I don't know, maybe. But I don't, I don't think I would say yes for sure. Peter Lightheart, who is our Mars Hill Forum speaker uh, this past year, says, Scripture isn't written mainly to answer my questions or make my decisions. It's not primarily addressed to my circumstances or dilemmas. It's addressed to me. Through his word, God transforms me into a living image of the living word. He remakes us so that we can remake the world according to the pattern of Scripture. He trains our senses to know good and evil. I'm going to read it again uh, because I don't have it you know, typed out or anything for you to refer back to. Scripture isn't written mainly to answer my questions or make my decisions. It's not primarily addressed to my circumstances or dilemmas. It is addressed to me. Through his word, God transforms me into a living image of the living word. He remakes us so we can remake the world according to the pattern of Scripture. He trains our senses to know good and evil. So most of the time, God won't use the Bible to tell you exactly what decision to make. But he uses the Bible to transform you into a good decision maker. As an inhabitant of this good world that's gone wrong, but is now invaded by the rightful king, whose kingdom is here and is increasing in glory. And that means, in a lot of ways, not just knowing what happened, we know what happened from the Bible, and we know where everything is going. But it's also very important to know what kind of world we live in. Um, sometimes the, the way that people present the gospel, you can go from Genesis 1, creation, Genesis 2, and then 3, the fall, and then John 3.16, revelation, boom. And that's the whole story of everything that's happened and where everything is going. But that leaves out a whole lot of the Bible, and God saw fit to put that whole lot of the Bible in there for us 
And so we should understand what it means. And in a lot of ways, it touches on what kind of world this is that we live in. And that's the subject of next month's talk, when we talk about some of the biblical imagery and symbolism and how the Bible communicates. But for now, I want to encourage us to read the Bible on its own terms. Again, it's okay to read the Bible devotionally, but let's not make that the only way we read. Let's come to the Bible on its own terms with an earnest commitment to understand it. Consider that I strike up a friendship with Noah, okay? Noah and I, are, we get together and we're striking up a friendship. And I spend a couple of coffees getting to know Noah. And after a coffee, Dawn asks, so how was coffee with Noah? And I say, you know, I really didn't get anything out of it. What would that be communicating about how I come to friendship with Noah? Wouldn't that be an odd and inappropriate response? Just an average Tuesday. Just, <laughs> just, just what other people say when they have coffee with you? Yeah. Um, I think it would say that my whole purpose in getting together with Noah and becoming friends with him is how it will benefit me. Uh, that I would be entertained or listened to or sympathized with. It would signal that I really don't care very much about Noah. And I don't take him on his terms. I'm not trying to understand him. I'm not listening to him about what he cares about. And I think that would be a lousy way to approach friendship, don't you? Well, it's a poor way to relate to the Father through his word. If we come to the word and we're thinking, "Ah, I just didn't get anything out of this. Uh, We may need to humble ourselves and realize that we're not reading the Bible on its own terms that we're coming to it merely to get something out of it for ourselves, and we're not paying attention to the Bible's concerns, what the Bible cares, what the Father cares about that's communicated to us through His Word. Listening to its concerns, which don't always match our concerns, posing its questions, which are not always our questions, attending to its way of communicating, which takes some learning, and receiving new eyes through which to see our world. The Bible seeks to give us new eyes so that we can see our world rightly and accurately through its lens. And it illuminates everything around us so that we can see it more clearly. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, Psalm 119, 105 says. So my exhortation, my my challenge to us this year is to go deep in the Word. Go deep. Ask God to fill you with His Word. Immerse yourself in it. Ask God to plant it deep in your heart so that it becomes the soil from which all your thoughts and actions and loves grow. Let that be the soil of your heart. This is God's desire for us. If He wanted us to just skim the Word, If he wanted us to have a surface understanding of the word, he wouldn't have given us a book that requires repeated reading and study. And the Bible does require repeated reading and study to really understand it. And if God just wanted us to be superficial with it, he wouldn't have given us a book that that, uh, doesn't allow for superficial reading. You know, Chase and I were talking about this earlier. Most books, most good books don't, need to be studied. They just, they present the information and there may be great ideas, but they don't even, they don't need to be studied. A lot of books don't even need to be read. And I know that we had, we had books in the wisdom pyramid and I, I, I am a big reader of books, but there are a lot of books that don't actually need to be read in our day. 
because you could read a blog post, you could watch a YouTube interview, and you could listen to a podcast interview and get the main ideas out of that book and then decide whether you want to do anything with them. But you don't even have to read it a lot of the time, let alone study it. Um, the Bible doesn't work that way. God has given us a wonderfully complex book that he reveals to us and opens to us as we immerse ourselves in it. To see the world through Bible's eyes, you have to get it deeply into you. And that's what my exhortation for us is this year. And I have a, a mini assignment. It's, it's a small assignment before next month because it's going to feed into what I'm going to be talking about next month. Sometime in the next month, I'd like you to look up these three passages on your own. Genesis 2, 10 through 14, Exodus 28, 6 to 14, and Revelation 21, 15 to 21. And I want you to ask yourself, why is this essential for me to know? Why is this essential for me to know? And what does this mean for my future? What does it mean for my future? I'll give you the first of these. I'll just read it aloud, the first of these, Genesis 2. Does anybody know what it is offhand without having looked it up? All right, here it is. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Pishon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold of that land is good. Bdellium and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria, and the fourth river is the Euphrates. Now, you try to read that devotionally, there's probably not a whole lot that you're going to get out of that. A lot of commentators don't even deal with it because they consider it just something that got stuffed into the text and doesn't really belong. But I want to maintain, if you take that and then you follow it through to Exodus 28 and to Revelation 21, and you could also look at Ezekiel 47, it's communicating something that is very important to thinking about our life in God and our future. So look those up, tease that out, and we'll talk about it more next month.